Thank you. Love you too, bro. Whoever said that. So, uh, guys, I want to invite you to do something. Um, and I think this is a, a very important invitation at a place like this, but one of the things I'd like to have you do for kind of the remainder of camp is to pay attention to what the Spirit is speaking to you. You, know, you come to places like this and we're surrounded by men that are trying to pursue Christ or trying to figure out what that means or trying to overcome issues, uh, trying to uh, enter into a new season and you're using this time to do that. And uh, I believe that God speaks even beyond the things that I'm going to say, uh, beyond the words that we sing. Uh, he's going to speak something to you in a way that's going to convict you. And we tend to hear those convictions and then let them pass by. And then we walk out with ever doing anything about them. I call that being convicted but not living with it. And so my challenge to you is, is for the remainder of your time here is to just kind of take notes when you feel like God is speaking. It could happen to you when you're walking, uh, when you're sitting at lunch. It could happen to you when uh, maybe I'm speaking or doing the music or during a seminar, but God might say something to you. And I want to encourage you to write that down and not let that thought pass you by. Because I think in that thought, in that splinter of a thought, God's trying to communicate something to you that maybe He wants you to do about what you believe or how you feel or what you're going to do when you leave this place. And so I want to invite you into the incredible conversation of the Spirit, okay? With that, we're going to dive into a series now on King David. And I'm going to try to pick up where Bobby led us through some of these, these leadership principles. We're going to dive into David uh, because I think he actually is an archetype of a leader that I think most men find pretty compelling. I mean, there's things about David that I find to be very interesting. Uh, he was the least of all of his brothers, so he's an underdog. Uh, he, he was a, a, kind of a simple shepherd, but God had kind of hardwired him in a very different way than anybody else in his family. Uh, he, he was an incredible warrior. He had a mighty group of men that followed him. Uh, he could put on skinny jeans and play guitar <laughs> in a way that wooed kings. He was incredibly good-looking, it says in the text, by the way. He's a very good-looking man. And so there were a lot of things, I think, about David that we admire about who he was, that we wish that we were at times. And yet, at the same time, he was a guy whose life was marked by a couple of big failures. He was a horrible father, which is marked out in the narrative in kind of some unfortunate ways. And of course, most well-known of all was the adultery with Bathsheba that led to a cascade of sins that marked his life forever. But get this, in the book of Acts, it still remembers David for the one thing that God saw in him that I think was most remarkable about David. He was a man after God's own heart. And there's something about this guy that has always kind of drawn me in. Because I think that there's something in him 
that we wish that we had in our own lives as well. So we're going to look at a few sessions from David and try to understand who this man was. Today we're going to look at just one psalm, just five verses. If you want to turn there, it's Psalm chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 today. But I think the mystery of King David was really the mystery of this man's heart. And if you want to get to know someone's heart, really who they are, all you got to do is read their journals. Well, David, David has about 70 different journal entries in the book of Psalms that we can read to get to know his heart, who he was kind of behind the curtain. And one of the things that I know about David is that David understood at a very, very young age how to find his identity in God and in nothing else. He fought for that. And I believe that's why he is marked as this man, as a man who lived pursuing God's own heart. Because see, David understood when he was younger, something we failed to probably understand when we were younger, is that our identity is found only in God. That is where all of it is carved out. David was very familiar with the Bible, very familiar with the uh, narrative of the Bible, and as he read the Bible, he understood the right order of things and how God had created all things. He understood way back at the beginning of time that God had created lightness, darkness, the planetary systems, earth, and created man as his finest creation that he placed man on earth to lead and have dominion and have rule over the earth itself, which, by the way, is a dream job when you think about it, right? I mean, think about that just for a second. At one time, we had planetary dominion. You know you've dreamed of that. We actually had that at one time. God, the creator of all things, gave his creation man, gender male, because God wasn't confused, and he gave him dominion, authority, power, and voice, by which next to define his creation, which is a mighty power when you think about it, that God would turn to man and give him the power to speak words and utterances to define things. That's powerful, fellas. Because if you think about it, God actually created with words. With words, he creates, and then as if God is mildly entertained, he turns to man and says, now you, just for a moment, have rule and power and dominion and voice and define things. And I kind of wonder if back in the early pages of the Bible, if God wasn't mildly entertained by what we name things. Don't you wonder? Don't you wonder if God at one point kind of listened as we were naming the creatures of the earth and said, that is the stupidest name I've ever heard. <laughs> but we'll run with it because I gave you the authority to do so. And because of inside of God's creation, he had given us some authority to exert our will in a way that was designed by him. I believe that God was actually entertained and found joy in what we were doing. 
because we were his joy. As time begins to pursue, God gives man a moral rule. One rule. Just one stinking rule. Not two, not ten that came later. Just one, because I think he knew we were slow. (laughs) And he told him not to eat of just one tree. There was two trees in the middle of the garden. One, the tree of life. The other, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat of the one tree. And don't you think it's interesting that the very first sin was around the activity of eating. We're going to eat lunch next. (laughs) Think about that. But there was something about this eating and something about this magical fruit that held knowledge that man didn't have. And then as the narrative kind of continues, then woman is created. Man saw that it was good for Him to not be alone, and he creates a helper for him in a rightly ordered way and provides for his desires, because that's what God does. He provides for man's desires in a rightly ordered way. And then woman is created out of him. That's what woman means, out of man. And then guess what the very next thing man names is? Woman. He imparts identity by giving her definition. Powerful. That's two chapters into the Bible, and then chapter three happens, and then we basically blow everything in the third chapter. Three chapters, that's all we get, fellas, of planetary dominion. That's it. And then it all falls apart. Man and woman are in the garden. Serpent shows up on the scene. That has always been problemsome for me. Has that been problemsome for you? It kind of disturbs me. I've been a a Christian a, a long time, but a talking serpent, really? But I kind of imagine a talking gecko selling insurance, and you've seen that before, so this is kind of what it looks like. And he's engaging in her, her in a conversation. He's trying to sell her an idea, but it's an idea that she actually wants to sell to herself because she desires it. She sees that it's appealing to the eyes, that there's desires to become wise, and she wants to be like God because she realizes there's something that she doesn't have. So really, the serpent is just selling back to her the things that she wants. And by active disobedience, she grabs the fruit and brings it back to man. And by passive disobedience, man eats as well. Disobedience, none the same. Two different types of obedience, but both were disobedient. But who is more culpable? of course, is the question we ask. And of course, you turn back to 1 Timothy, we discover that that woman was deceived, but yet man empowered with planetary dominion, rule, voice, and a moral rule before woman was ever created, was silent in the moment that he wanted what he wanted. And therefore, the world was destroyed by our sin. Because we found our identity outside of ourselves is why. Because we sought something that we truly desired, that we were ashamed to admit and were passive toward it and allowed it to happen, which is where we are culpable the most, gentlemen. This little sin back here is exactly the same sin that plays out in most men's lives. We are passive and apathetic to the desires of our heart that we really want that God knows that are off limits to us that destroy our identity. But David, at the beginning of his story, 
is a man who's after God's own heart, meaning that God saw in him that he had desires that weren't for himself, but were for God. And he chose him to be the next king of Israel because there was something different about this man's heart. Because that's what God is looking for. And I believe David understood that. From a very young age, there was just something different about his heart. Now, mind you, there are places in his life that things fell apart. But for the most part, if you read his story, you'll hear a struggle of a man against the voices of the world in trying to find his identity only in God. Well, actually, fellas, if you read the story of the Bible, it's actually remarkable, because get this, it's actually a story for men written by nothing but men so that you might understand how to be a man. That's it. The narrative of the Bible is all about God looking for a man. After the fall in the garden, what God is looking for is one, Ezekiel 22:30. For I sought among them a man who would stand on my behalf of the land that I should not destroy, but I found no one, none, zero, nada, in any language, it's still zero. Yet, throughout the Old Testament, you kind of see these hopeful moments, right? But then tragic failure. Hopeful moment, tragic failure, hopeful moment, tragic failure, hopeful moment. Tragic failure. You know, ever since then, we've been trying to figure out how to find a pathway to our identity, how to understand how we can become men, which, by the way, is the number one question that all men ask. What does it mean to be a man? I promise you, you ask that question at least one time a day intuitively without even recognizing it. And I work with men, so I know it's true. And I've studied men, and I watch their behaviors, and I've even studied myself to understand that there's basically only four ways that men pursue an answer to that question, what does it mean to be a man? There's only four ways. They've been seen down through time in many different ways. Here's the first way. You may want to write this thing down. We pursue an answer to that question by pursuing the opposite of what women pursue. Exactly the opposite. All of a sudden, one day, we're over on a play date over at somebody's house when we're a little kid, and we're on this little play date, and there's a girl over there, and all of a sudden, we realize that she's got different body, bodily appendages than we do. And we suddenly think in our mind that for us to become men is to pursue something opposite of what women are pursuing. And this is reinforced in culture by things that we say, adages that we unfortunately throw out of the culture. Like, don't throw like a girl, don't act like a girl, don't cry like a girl. And all that just kind of reinforces the moving toward opposites as if that's the ideal to be something completely different from women. But as I read the Bible, I understand that both man and woman were created in the image of God and in His image they were created, and that there's something that we are chasing mutually in perfect womanhood and manhood that is going to define who we are. So it isn't just about pursuing opposites. Now, the second way that men pursue an answer to this question is by rites of passage. This is culturally traditional. 
by the way. We even create rites of passage so that men will become men, hoping that this activity will help them become men, right? Moments like the first moment I had a smoke or my first drink or the first time I penetrated a woman. Moment I got my driver's license, moment my first job, as if any of those activities actually make men. I mean, seriously. I mean, think about it just for a second. Women have sex, and they don't become men. <laughs> oh, you had to think about that one, didn't you? And that is because behaviors don't make men. We try to coerce them into making them men, but I know grown adult men that have never become men, and I know young people that are more men than some adult men. This is exactly why Jesus said, hinder not the little children from coming to me, because he saw something in children that he wanted his boys to see. His boys were keeping the little children away from him, but Jesus is saying, let them come, because I see something in them that you need to have as a man. Transparency, freedom, a sense of abandonment and recklessness, love, faith. Look at these kids. You have outgrown these things and put them away from you as a man, but you miss the beauty of their reckless faith. Hinder them not to come to me and jump all over me. Why? Because a behavior doesn't make you a man. Third way men pursue an answer to this question, what makes a man? And this is where most men get stuck, by the way. Success, status, and accomplishment. If we can get over the first two kind of rhythms or ways that we become men, then hopefully we get into this one. And, and I've seen men get stuck here for years and years and years and years and years. They think that their identity at work, the time that they spent trying to accomplish things, that success that surrounds that is going to make them a man. But guess what the number one reason the men go to counseling is? Because they lost their job. And with it, they lost their identity because they don't know who they are without their work and their status and their title, which is a horrible place to be, by the way. It's a horrible place to learn that once you lose everything, you're nothing. Yet with nothing, you're everything in God's kingdom. You don't need anything, anything at all in God's kingdom to become the greatest of men. Jesus had nothing. He left a place with everything to come and have nothing. I mean, think about that just for a second. Yeah, we would say he's the finest of men, wouldn't we? We got to rethink that. Fourth way that men pursue an answer to this question is by the pursuit of attributes, positive attributes that suddenly make you a man. Uh, Aristotle talked about this quite a bit in a book called Neo-Mankian Ethics. He, he describes these 12 different attributes that if, that if men actually pursued them would make them men. Make them men. And by the way, I'm not smarter than Aristotle, but I know enough to know that sheer will does not make you a man. And by the way, that sounds exhausting. I can't even do one thing right by sheer will. Give me 12 things, and how do I measure those things against other people? How do I know when I've ever arrived? You don't know because you can't do it by sheer will. That is because identity is not found in these pursuits. All of them are failed. And the reason why is we're asking the wrong question. The question isn't what makes men. The question is who makes a man? And there's only one that makes them. His name is God, and God made the first one, and he was 
very good, and yet we pursue it in all these other ways. We pursue it listening to a world that tells us that they have the answers. In fact, today we do this in the most heinous of ways. We make up our own identity, which is, if you think about it, is the most heinous sin of all. It's to say that I am God and I'll decide and you will be subservient to my definition of what I believe. But that's preposterous, fellas. That is the heinous of sins. Our culture has gotten sickened by this. It is grotesque because guess what? There is only one who imparts identity and he gives it to us. And I believe he took that question off the table because he knew it was too much for us to bear. We got enough problems to begin with. Let him design man and let's follow his order. It's pretty basic logic when you actually think about it. If someone created us, then let's just live out his design and intent. He decides. And guess what? I think David really understood that. I think David understood that God had an intent and a design for men. Therefore, in David the man, he saw something different. He saw a man after God's own heart. And yet, this is the only way that we become men, is by having a divine example of what that looks like. So while the narrative of the Bible kind of continues this way with God searching for a man and searching for a man, and we have a few, hope, few hopeful glimpses, guess what? I think toward the end of the New Testament, God gets mildly irritated with us. I do. I think he gets irritated with us. So guess what he does? He provides his own man. That's what he does. He provides the ideal, his son, Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, he lives as the perfect man. He came to this world to show us what it looks like to be men, and he had men follow him along the way. And then at the end of life, he does this thing. It's a crazy cool thing. He offers his life as the perfect sacrifice for the sin back in the garden so that we would have the right to become sons of God. And by simply believing that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, offered his life as that sacrifice for our sin, by what he did on the cross, he then raised to new life so that we could have new life so that we can become children of God. How crazy is that? That is the craziest miracle of all time in that God punctuated it by proving that he did it by raising from the dead as evidence that he defeated sin so that we could have life in him. Restoring back our manhood and guess what the rite of passage is to receive this? grace. That's it. It's just grace. Belief by faith that he was the man who is remaking us as men. So if you want to know how to become God's man, that's it right there. Jesus Christ, the man, shows us how to become the men that we were designed to be back in the garden. How cool is that? That's the story of the Bible. It's a story about men, a man actually, and a story about us, God restoring us back to authentic manhood. But get this, I know the journey is not easy. 
right? So along the way, we're going to fight, fight, fight these challenges. And it's the challenges of, I think, really listening to the right voice about who we are. Because as much as we can believe that Jesus Christ has raised us to new life and restored us to his intended, God's intended identity along the path of life as Christian men, we're going to hear a lot of voices that are going to distract us along the way, that are going to speak to this identity. And I believe there's about five voices that all men hear on the path of our life. Here they are, five voices. You may want to write these down as well. Here's the first voice. It's the voice of the man that you think you are. By the way, you are a legend in your own mind, aren't you? I think along the journey of life, we do hear that voice. It's the voice of pride. It's the voice of arrogance. It's the voice of who we dream that we are. And all it takes is a, is a little endearing of who we are, and our personality, our gifts, and our talents, of something that we've done well, a that a boy, a pat on the back, or something to draw out this voice where all of a sudden we make more of ourselves and less of God. More of ourselves and less of God. It's a very tempting voice in our life. The second voice that we are tempted by in our life is the voice of the man that other people say that we are. And I promise you, there are other people that have a wonderful plan for your life. Your wife, your boss, your friends, and at times they're going to speak things to you that are going to direct your life, and you're going to work to please them sometimes because you hear your identity through their voice. The third voice is the voice of the man that you think that you are. Or the third voice is the voice of the man that you think that other people think that you are. It's kind of a, a cunning little voice here, but it's a voice that you think about late at night when you're lying in your bed, when you think about the regrets of your day. And the things that you said, and it speaks volumes to you, and you play out these scenarios in your mind about who you think they might think that you are, and it leads you down a crazy path in life. And a lot of people get stuck right there with that voice, daily, speaking volumes to them, even imagining and playing out situations in their own mind. The fourth voice is one that is hard for some. It's the voice of our past. It's the echoes of the past that seem not to go away. And unfortunately, even though we are a redeemed man, this voice keeps coming back time and time and time again. And some people will weaponize our past against us to keep us enslaved to an old identity. And then finally, there's this fifth voice. It's the fifth voice, and it's the voice of the one that we should be listening to most of the time. It's the voice of the man that God says that you are. And we fight and we struggle to listen to this voice kind of down the path of life to hear it to listen to it, to believe it. It's everything in Ephesians 1. It's that you're redeemed and you're adopted and you're loved and you're full of grace and mercy and hope that you are a son of the living God. It's that voice that we should be clamoring to listen to, to hear in the confines of our heart. And this isn't the power of positive thinking. This is actually the power of becoming the man that you already are. I'm not Tony Robbins today. This is you using God's word. Again, listen to this. God's spoken word when he created you, that he gave you divine authority over to speak into the world, that he used Jesus as the living word to speak to us, that he wrote down in the word, it actually is the truth that rewires our soul on a daily basis, that speaks the only truth that exists about who you are. And you can choose to listen to these other four voices, but God's voice is the only voice that determines your path and your identity. 
And we have to learn to shut out all these other voices that are screaming at us on a daily daily basis. I hear all four of these voices all the time, every day. And I've got to be fighting to listen to this. And I believe that this is the man that David was. He was a man who understood his identity in God, but then fought and clamored and clawed to moment by moment, daily, find his identity in God alone and in nothing else. And if you read his story, which spans multiple books of the Bible, I promise you, you'll see that time and time again. If you allow these points to play out in your life as you read through his narrative, you will see these things in David's heart. You will see him play out time and time and time and time again. But today, what I want to do in the last part of this message is I want to take you deep into the soul of David, deep into his soul. Because there's no better way to know what a man really thought about God and how he fought for his identity than to read his journal, to really read his journal. Many years ago, I was, uh, uh, I was um, coming on, to, um, on staff at a youth organization called Young Life. And uh, when I was young, young in my walk, I worked for this organization and uh, they had a training center out in Colorado Springs, and so um, I had to fly out there to get trained, you know, and, and I was going by myself, and so I flew in, uh, I was grabbing my car, and I went to grab something to eat in downtown Colorado Springs, and I was just kind of walking around the street, and I stopped, into a, I stopped into a store, it happened to be a jewelry store, I don't exactly know why I walked in there, but I walked in, and I was kind of looking around, and I happened to talk to the guy who owned the place, and he was standing behind the counter, and he noticed that I had a, a shirt on that sported the name Young Life, and he says, oh, are you here for Young Life training? And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, uh, I, I'll pray for you. I hope you have a good time. And I says, oh, you know Young Life? And he goes, well, yeah, I know Young Life. My dad founded the organization. Um, I happened to be talking to a guy named Jim Rayburn Jr., and his dad founded the organization in the 1940s. And he said, I know you're going to go up for training, but he says, why don't you come over to my house for dinner tonight, which I thought was a bizarre invitation to someone he met just for the very first time. But uh, I took him up in the offer. I came over, I went up, I registered for camp, I went over, and I, I headed over to his home for dinner. I ate with him and his wife, and basically for the next three hours, he told me stories about his dad, which, by the way, was the best, best uh, education you could get for someone coming on Young Life staff, right? is to hear it from the horse's mouth, all the history. He told me everything good and everything bad. And then after dinner was done, he said to me, would you like to read my father's journals? So he goes up in the attic and brings down two, he brings down two big boxes of these, these little journals. You know, they were just kind of like little four by six things that he wrote in. And basically for the next couple hours, all I did was read his journals, which by the way, was an even better education on the history of young life. Because day after day after day, I just heard markings and journal entries of who this man really was. And day after day, it was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids who came to know Christ through the message of Jim Rayburn, his father. Well, that's what we're going to read here. You're going to read, in a second, five verses from a private journal entry from one of the great kings who's ever lived in Old Testament time. And I want you to notice three things here about this man and how he fought for his identity in God. Here they are. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. I think these words say so much about who David is, and you could read all 70 of his journal entries, but I tell you this one right here in this little compact moment says, everything that I want you to hear today about where men find their identity and how to find it anchored in Jesus Christ. Here's principle number one. Principle number one is this. He was recklessly transparent. Listen to the verse again. Recklessly transparent. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Fellas, I think one of the things that Christian men get all wrong is we play our cards way too tight. We play our cards way too tight for too many reasons. And we play up this edifice of who we are because, by the way, the church plays right into the devil's scheme on this one. And what we need today are more transparent, open, and honest men. In God's kingdom, we need that kind of man, and David was that kind of man. There is nothing that David didn't lay on the table. Even when he was confronted about his sin, even though there were times that he hid it, the worst, time of, the worst times of David's life were in the moments that he hid. But it was when he was transparent that he was at his best. But the problem is, is we have to learn to be transparent because we do not have to learn to pretend. I have a youngest son. His name is Riley. Uh, he's 20 yesterday. He had a birthday yesterday. And uh, when he was a little bit younger, I'd say he was probably about 15 at the time, uh, one night he happened to be down the street at a girl's house. So we had a neighborhood at one time with a lot of teenage kids in the neighborhood. And, you know, we, kids would kind of float house to house. And so Late one night, he was over at this girl's house, and there were a bunch of people over there. And, uh, you know, he comes home about 11 o'clock or so, and me and my wife are in bed. And we heard RJ come home, and he came into the house, and something was a little bit off. You know, I, I've been a father. I'm a father of three, so I have a 25-year-old and a 21-year-old and a 20-year-old. And uh, when he came into the house, I'd been a father long enough to know that something was wrong. Like, you just kind of know when something's off. You can smell there's something wrong in the fridge, and you got to go hunt and find out what that thing is and get it out of the fridge. Well, I knew something was wrong. So I turned over to my wife, and I said, the way he came in the house was weird. He says, I think I'm going to go downstairs and kind of see what's going on. So I went downstairs, and I kind of confronted him. I said, is everything okay? And he said, yeah, Dad, everything is okay. And I kind of asked him a second time because it still seemed kind of off, and, and he, you know, he's a masterful liar, you know. So he just kind of said, no, Dad, we're good. I'm, I'm just getting ready for bed. I'm just get some things set here, and I'll see you in the morning. I said, that sounds good. So I, I came upstairs, and I felt like a pretty successful father at that moment. Turned to my wife, said, got to take care of, you know. 
And then 15 minutes later, 15 minutes later, uh, we get a call from the neighbor. So the woman at the house that he was at, she calls, and I pick up the phone, and she just goes ballistic right away. Just all kinds of things coming out of her mouth, and I'm trying to discern the situation, and she tells me everything that went on, and I said I would promise I would take care of it. So I talked to my wife about it. It was sitting next to me, and we're trying to figure out how to handle this situation, and I said, why don't you let me go down first, see if I can get somewhere with him, come down in 15 minutes, and we'll see where I'm at, all right? And, I, you know, I head down the stairs, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself as a father at this moment, you know, and I kind of got a plan, walking down the stairs, and I walk into the room, and I just try to confront Riley about it without letting him know that I know, right? Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pull something out of him. As a young man, I want to teach him to be transparent, right? So five minutes in, 10 minutes in, 15 minutes in, I'm getting nowhere, by the way. I have tried the soft method, if you know what I mean, right? The soft method. And then all of a sudden, I hear my wife coming down the stairs. I feel like less of a man, so I go toward the hard method, right? Because we got to make progress quickly here, right? <laughs> so all of a sudden, I get a little harder and a little harder, and my wife walks in. She does this thing, kind of stares me down. I'm pushing a little harder. Fifteen minutes later, my wife's still standing there watching me as I'm trying to engage my son. I'm getting nowhere. This is 30 minutes in now, having a conversation with my son, trying to figure out how to approach it, how to draw him out. I am exasperated. I feel exhausted. I feel like a failure as a man. I feel like a failure as a father. And as a husband, there is no reward later for this one, right? So I just exasperated. I sat down next to my son, Riley, and I just say, son, I don't nowhere to go with you on this one, but I know something's wrong, and I think you need to share what it is. And then all of a sudden, I watch his shoulders round and his head drop low, and he kind of rolls in, and he says this thing to me where he goes, because he's masterful. He just, he knows how to handle situations. He goes, okay, I'll tell you, but number one, you got to promise not to tell anybody. Tell anybody. Number two, you can't do anything about it. <laughs> I'm like, who's in charge here, bro? <laughs> like, you know, okay. Uh, but because I knew what the situation was, which doesn't matter, by the way, all right, because I knew what the situation was and I knew what I was going to do, uh, it didn't really matter, so I agreed to his terms, all right? And so I agreed to his terms, and as soon as he did, he told me. And as soon as he told me, I watched his demeanor changed. But then he turned his head toward me to see what I was going to do, and then my wife watches as I put my arm around him, and I said, Riley... That's what men do. Men don't pretend. Men are honest about what they have done and accept the consequences for their actions. You know, the funny thing about this moment is it's indicative about how most men act, right? Just watch the behaviors of men for a while. You kind of know how they act. We learn from a very, very young age that when we do something wrong, that it's wrong. Therefore, what we do is we feel a sense of consciousness about this wrong thing, and we have to decide how we're going to act following that thing when our conscience begins to kind of fire. The choice that most men make is they pretend. They actually allow themselves to sit in that fear, sit in that pain, sit in that wound just long enough that they allow the pain and the consequences of the feeling itself to become their penance for the sin, 
Therefore, they put on a shell and pretend that it didn't happen. And because of this, they begin a demonic cycle, a cycle that never ends. Because what happens then is they repeat the same behavior again. And because they're afraid of the consequences again, they pretend bigger. And they allow the pain of that personal sin and the consciousness to become the penance again, and they just keep the cycle of sin and of fear and of shame and pretending going and going and going, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it becomes so big that the consequences are so frightening that they're afraid to ever deal with it until guess what happens? They get caught. They get caught, and all of a sudden, actually what they feel is a sense of freedom from that thing. They feel like they begin to regain an understanding of what was happening by here, and they begin separated from the sin for a moment, so much so that they can actually engage in true repentance with God and heal the issues that were happening way back here. But I want you guys to know, you don't have to teach a man how to do this. This is intuitively in his nature as a human, as a sinner. And he'll repeat it over and over and over again. What you do have to teach a man how to do is how to be transparent. You actually have to teach a man how to do that. And if he never learns how to do it, the cycle will continue and continue and continue. And David understood that here. I mean, listen to what David is saying in this moment. He's saying it. Let me read it again. It's it's powerful. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you hear this despair in his voice? He's saying out loud that he feels abandoned by God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet what's so fascinating about this verse right here is this is the same cry that Jesus spoke from the cross. So why does Jesus do that? There might be a lot of reasons that he did, but I really believe one of the reasons he did was because Jesus was a fully transparent man. He wanted to show us that he connects with our flesh. He connects with our pain. He connects with now the distance of what it feels like to be separated from God. He knows that anguish. So he knows how you feel. But the greatest man who ever walked in our flesh was too transparent. He just spoke it. You know what? We need these men in our churches today. We need these men to be brave. And inside of a culture, inside of a culture in your church, regardless of how it looks, I know that there is a... There is a way about us that wants to accept the pretending because we feel safer in the pretending. And we like it when people pretend because, well, we don't know how to deal with a lot of those issues, right? Yet God in his church is calling us to come out from behind the pretending because it's then that he can actually deal with the men that we are. You know what I want you to do over this this weekend together with me? I want you to take a stab at this. I want you to take one step toward transparency. It doesn't have to be a big step, just just a small step toward making yourself a little bit uncomfortable. 
maybe at your table, maybe in your groups, maybe in a conversation as you're walking around, that you open up to somebody and you share a little bit about what you're struggling with and you start practicing this because the only way to do it is to learn how to do it. Because, fellows, we got ABT issues, I call them, ain't been taught. And because we ain't been taught, we don't know how to do a lot of the things in the Christian life. And this is one of them. But we have to start teaching each other how to do it. And the only way to teach each other how to do it is by doing it ourselves. This is the best incubator for all that to happen is right here at this experience. And if we can learn this here, then we can take it home with us. And all of a sudden, we begin to experience freedom in the Spirit because now we've opened up about these things and we've taken power away from this cycle. Do you see that? We've taken power away from all of it, all the hiding and the pretending. You want freedom? Transparency is the first step toward it. It's the first step toward discovering your identity in Christ is by no longer pretending and living in a prison of sin. Number two, the second thing that David did is he re relentlessly searched for God. He relentlessly searched for God. He says this, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. That is what a man, a Christian man, indwelled by the Spirit of God does, is he relentlessly, relentlessly pursues his identity in Jesus Christ, and he never gives up. He keeps pursuing it over and over and over and over again, and he fixates on it, and he will not take his mind off how to do it. Because in the culture that we live in, there are plenty of distractions. I can tell you, fellas, when I want something, I figure out a way to get it. Don't you? I do. Shoot, early in my marriage, soon after I got married, we had our first kid, we moved into a new house, and I had this big yard. I had a three-quarter acre grass yard. And I want you to know the number one thing I hate doing in this life is mowing the grass. Hate it. I think it's the most disgusting form of masculinity known in suburban culture. It's gross. I hate walking out on a Saturday and seeing other men mow the grass. This is what we do. You know, we just kind of mow our grass, you know, with our electric mowers, by the way. I know you guys have fake grass here, so, you know, good for you. But I, I like fake grass, man. I think that's the best way to go. Never have to mow that thing ever. So, Anyway, I'm out on, you know, mowing my grass, and it's three-quarters of an acre, fellas. That's a lot of grass with a 20-inch lawnmower. I, seriously, I had a 20-inch lawnmower. This was awful. It was an hour and a half of mowing every Saturday. I hated it. I, I think I cursed more in my mind in that hour and a half than I had in my entire life the first time I had to mow it. Seriously. And it just it kept getting the best of me. The first year we moved into the house, I told my wife, you've got to get a riding lawnmower, got to get a riding lawnmower, got to get one, got to get one. I'm not mowing this grass. So no kidding, I said it every time I came in from mowing the grass, every single time. Because I knew that that was the only way I was going to convince my wife is if I just, I just kept coming after the issue. Because, fellas, we come after things when we want them, don't we? So no kidding, we went an entire summer without getting a riding lawnmower because we didn't have the cash to do it. Next summer comes... I'm out there pushing my lawnmower again, 20 inches, right? Hour and a half of mowing the grass. One day, my wife and my kids are at the mall. She's got them out, kind of entertaining them. I'm mowing the grass. I come in. I'm pretty irritated. I'm angry. I get on the internet. Get on Sears.com. Start putting things in the cart. All of a sudden, I put it in the cart, and I kind of want to get into the checkout process so I could see how much shipping was. And then I pushed purchase. 
Yes, but that is a no. <laughs> uh, I pushed yes, and oh boy, that was not good. I actually instantly regretted it, but there was no way to back out of that thing. There was no undoing what I just did. And I thought, oh no. My wife comes home from the mall with the kids and is complaining about all the chaos that she was in. So I figured that wasn't the right moment to say I just spent $600 on a riding lawnmower. So I figured I had a few days. I figured maybe I had a week or two. <laughs> Sears was pretty good. It got there in a day and a half. In a day and a half. They drop a crate off in the driveway, in our little driveway. They drop it off in the driveway. My wife is out with the kids. She comes home, and it's in the middle of the driveway. She calls me at work. She goes, what's this thing in the driveway? I go, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> I actually didn't know what she was talking about because there's no way there's a mower there. Sure enough, there's a mower there. That was the worst week of my entire life, by the way. I just want you to know. Don't do that. That is not a funny thing. I will tell you I learned a very important lesson about that, a couple lessons, and one of them is when we really want something, we will find a way to get it. If you really want Jesus, you will find a way to get him. And if you really want to search for him, you will find a way. David says right here, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. David restlessly and relentlessly pursued God. And he did it with all of his heart. I think that's why God called him a man after God's own heart is because he saw something in him that was unlike most men. He was not distracted by the musings of life, except a couple of times, don't get me wrong. But most of the time, he saw something in David that was relentless, pursuing God, which we're going to see in the next couple of sessions as well. This guy had a heart and a desire to pursue it because he wanted it. And if you really want God, he will reveal himself to you. But you got to want it. And you got to want it bad. That's why I use that phrase all in all the time. Because I really believe you're going to do something with Christ. He doesn't want part of it. He wants all of it all the time. And you got to live all in for him. Because he lived all in for you. And that's all he wants is an all in commitment. It wasn't a partial commitment. It was a full commitment. And he wants you to be relentless about it. And this is what the kingdom needs to today more than ever. Relentless men like the men sitting in this room who won't give up and won't quit even when they face issues in their marriage, issues in life, issues at work, issues in their personal life, when they hear all those voices, they won't quit. They're going to find a way because the battle is in here with the enemy within. And guess what Satan wants? He wants passivity and apathy from the man who's been given voice and dominion authority to whom he gave, gave all moral rules, you, relentless. Third thing is this, is that David regularly preached to himself. Don't ever forget that. He preached to himself. Listen to three through five. He says, all this, he, remember, he, he's crying out. He's trying to pursue God. He feels left behind in this journal entry. And then all of a sudden he says this, yet, that's a conjunction, yet, but, right, yet, you are holy. That's a fact. He's anchoring himself in a fact. You are holy enthroned on the, on the praises of Israel. Not his praises, because people are saying his praises, right? On the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not pushed to shame. 
Right here is that secret, is that David was always preaching to himself. You know the most important person to preach to is yourself. I have to preach that last identity to myself all the time when all those other voices are coming at me. i got to preach to myself that I am loved, that I am not forsaken, that I am holy, that I am adopted, that I am a son of the living God. Fellas, you need to be preaching that to yourselves. In fact, God preached something audibly in the New Testament twice. God himself, God who spoke us into existence, that God, the God who gave us the power to speak, the God who gave us the spoken word in flesh, Jesus, the God who gave us his book, the word of God inspired by him, God spoke three times in the New Testament. Two of the times he said this, for this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the other time he said, listen to him. Why do you think God said that out loud? Do you think God said it out loud because Jesus needed to hear it? Maybe. But maybe he said it because he knew we needed to hear it. Because guess what? If you, are a, if you are a child of God, if you're a son of God in this room, did you know that you are a first-generation recipient of all of his riches? There is only one father, and you are not it. We may play that role, but we ain't the father. We are just sons of God, and that's it. And that is our first job, is to be a son of God. And every man sitting next to you is also a son of the living God. And I think that God wanted us to hear those words from him spoken to a son so that we might understand that we have a father who has created us, who loves us, and by speaking imparts an identity to us that cannot be rejected by the lies of this world. And guess what? We need to be preaching that to ourselves all the time. In the moments that I feel disqualified, in the moments I've sinned, in the moments I've screwed up in our marriage, the moments that, that I've failed with my kids, in, in, the, in the moments that I have spoken words that I shouldn't have said, in, in the moments I felt things that, well, I shouldn't have felt, in all those moments I continue to preach to myself, preach to myself the truth about me from God himself that rewire and reorient my identity toward who God wants me to be. That's what David is doing here. That's all he's doing. He feels a certain way, right? He feels forsaken by God. But then he says this, Yet you are wholly enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them to you, they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. Fellas, there's things that you need to be preaching to yourself right now, and I'm praying that God is putting them on the frontal lobe of your mind. There's things that only you need to hear, that you need to hear from God, that you need to hear from His Word. 
And I want you to know that God wants to speak those audibly to you so that you will believe that that's true. That's not the power of positive thinking. That's actually the power of the Spirit working within you, crafting your identity to become more like Him day by day by day by day. And that's all we're trying to do on this journey. So, fellas, go be that man. Be transparent. Pursue it relentlessly. And keep preaching to yourself until Jesus comes back to take us home. Father God, I know that in this place that you've been speaking things to these little in these little moments, these little splinters of thought that you've been speaking to each one of these men in this room. God, I don't know how that mystery of that works, but I know this, the power of those convictions have the power to reorient our life. God, you impart identity. You impart it. God, I pray that right now that we as men would receive that. God, maybe there are some men in this room that for the very first time want to receive their identity as a, as a son of the living God. All that, 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 that just happens simply by believing that Jesus died and rose again, giving his life as a sacrifice on our cross for our sin so we might become the men that he intended us to be. And right there in that moment, we become children of the living God. For the first time, a man of God. God, there are some of us in this room that need to reorient our identity. We've gotten a little off track. We've kind of concealed some things, hidden some things. We've been pretending even since we've been here. But God, you're calling us into transparency. You're calling us into a sense of abandonment. And you're calling us to preach the truth to our own self. So we can continue this journey as being your man, influencing the world around us through the good news of your salvation living in us. God, we live in a time that needs better men, but not just better men, God's men. We pray that you would use us individually to impact our families, our churches, and the world. And we pray this in the name of one who did, Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. Amen. Thank you, guys.